You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 14th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... Yes, the Soleimani killing was an act of aggression, but it was after the Iranian-aligned militia group sort of was attempting to storm the US embassy. Although there was something in the works, I don't think that it was option A for a very, very long time. My guests Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Robert Fox will talk about the latest on Iran and the day's other news, including has the Murdoch press stolen the narrative of wildfires in Australia? And what's the purpose of having a twin city? Prague and Shanghai will certainly be choosing their partners carefully going forward after falling out in recent days over differing views on Taipei. Plus, our fashion team brings us a dispatch from the runways in Milan, where it seems formal wear is set for a comeback. If brands are to tempt consumers into dressing more sharply, they'll need to imbue tailored ensembles with sportswear's comfort and ease. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. Joining me in the studio, the Sudanese-Australian writer and broadcaster Yasmin Abdel-Majid and the London Evening Standard Defence editor Robert Fox. Welcome both of you to today's programme. Let's begin by looking at Iran, where issues involving the country usually follow a reliable narrative. The rogue state stroke fully paid up member of the Axis of Evil acts as an existential threat to the West. The US President Donald Trump then drives a cart and horses through any efforts to bring Tehran to the negotiations negotiating table and the divisions deepen. But the last few days and weeks events, however, have rather muddied things. So who's won this latest round of the narrative? Yasmin, the playbook's been messed about with here, hasn't it? Yes, I do think that is one interpretation of it. Although I think if we sort of, if you look at, yes, um, the killing of Soleimani and then obviously the downing of the plane, which was an accident or or at least now has been... um, the, the Iranian officials have sort of said, yes, this is something that we've done partly because they've been backed into a corner because the, there was overwhelming evidence um, that it had been uh, the Iranians themselves that had done this. I do think also, if you zoom out, it is still part of the tit for tat that um, that has been seen playing out over the past few months. Like, yes, um, the Soleimani uh, killing was an act of aggression, but it was after um, the Iranian-aligned uh, militia group sort of was attempting to storm the U.S. embassy. So it wasn't completely out of the blue. And then you had the Aramco um, attacks last year, and so and obviously what was going on in the Persian Gulf with the oil tankers. And so yes, I think that we can we can see this as quite out of the ordinary. But I think it is perhaps just an escalation of the usual way that things pan out. Um, but, you know, Robert, I am keen to hear your thoughts because this, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that um, Donald Trump is also a different factor in this than usual. Robert, what do you think about this idea that, yes, it's different, but not as different as some might think? The thing that's so difficult about Trump, um, it's less difficult with Putin, and they're very similar in their personality and the way they impose their personalities on geopolitics, is that whether he is driving events or is being driven by events, uh, the jury is still out on this one. I think that the killing of Soleimani was, although there was something in in, in the works, 
I don't think that it was option A for a very, very long yes. time. Um, they don't understand what's, what's going on. That's one thing that um, is so clear about this, mm. that the hollowed out personal administration of Trump, namely the National Security Council and uh, the State Department, they, th there are factors that they simply do not understand because, by the way, it is just too complex. I mean, because there's now uh, an arc of fantastic instability from the Bosphorus right round the Mediterranean uh, to the Western Mediterranean, and you have to take the Gulf into that system. There are forces which are not necessarily state actors and are not controlled by state actors now abroad. Trump's main aim, then, mm. is to get out, actually, is, yeah. uh, and where Soleimani and what he was sponsoring with Mohandis, who's a fascinating figure as well, was doing, was thwarting that. Mm. They were just not allowing Trump to go to the American people saying, I've told you I was going to end all these useless wars, which is what he very, very much wanted to do. So he's in a paddy. He's in a paddy because of impeachment and, and, and because of this. And quite how the Soleimani thing was planned, we can discuss further, but it's not as straightforward as it seems. It's a difficult issue as well in terms of the way that events have spun out, that mm. actually one gets the impression that no one was really in control of what was happening here. The assassination of General Soleimani, ostensibly a gesture by the United States to bring Iran sharply into line to say, we will limit your influence by taking away the big player. Arguably... They tried to take two big players, it must be said, at the same time, because they tried to kill the IGRC chief in, in, in Yemen. So there was some kind of thing... Cut off the head, get out. The difficulty is, though, is that yeah. some were arguing that although Soleimani had uh, committed some terrible atrocities, he was actually genuinely mourned by people in Iran who's found him a sort of a quite a rousing popular figure. So that had the potential to backfire on the United States, were it not for the fact that the plane was then accidentally by, downed by the, by the Iranians. And as a result, the Iranians had to come out and apologise. And arguably, I would, I'd argue... Um, uh, Yasmin, it made the Iranians look a little bit more human and, and you know, able to put their hands up and say, sorry, we did this. Yeah, it is quite interesting how the focus has now shifted in a way to um, rather than Iranian, rather than the sort of the regime being this sort of like this rogue state and this indestructible um, sort of very uh, mythical state almost to, to being like, well, we're a bunch of people who do make mistakes. And I do think they've played it in the only way they possibly could. Because once people started to realise, you know, the, the evidence started to come out on social media and so on, that this was something that um, that was done by the Iranians, there was nowhere for them to go. And so they've, they've sort of said, yes, we're going to find whoever's responsible for this, and it's going to be thoroughly investigated and so on. And really, I think they are trying to make the best of a situation. I mean, ultimately, they should, if they were alert for um, incoming missiles, they should definitely have grounded planes. You know, this was a mistake, and, and one that has cost lots of lives. And also, interestingly, now you've got the Canadians, involved and a bunch of other countries involved. So I think to your point, people, I mean, it's not a stable situation where we're like, all right, we're going to make this move and this is going to happen. To your point, Robert, it is incredibly complex. And the broader context is one that 
continues to change. Um, and that makes it incredibly difficult to predict. And we now have calls for regi- regime change, not from the United States so strongly anymore. We have calls for regime change from inside Iran itself, from the protesters. That's why I'd like to go back on something that you said about this enormous display that you had. This sort of it was like like Ava Peron, wasn't it, parading the body around um, Iran and they getting these millions out. Uh, that was nationalist Iranian sheer hysteria. Um, it was not necessarily for him. Uh, although he was quite a pop star figure, he was much disliked within the establishment. And one of his biggest enemies, of course, was none other than President Hassan Rouhani, because he thought he, he copped the limelight, copped the money when they didn't have the money, and um, was doing things behind his... He wasn't... Uh, people go on saying he was the most significant. Yes, he was the most famous, but he wasn't senior commander. He kept on going behind senior commander, the commander-in-chief of the Republican, uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps um, command, sending 400 men off his own bad, Iranians, into um, Idlib, for, for example, which was another tremendous point of argument. And why there are several reasons why it's coming unstuck with the regime. The deal with people like Mohandas that Soleimani did was that with the Hezbollahs, including the Lebanese Hezbollah, extremely important in Syria, but particularly these uh, the, the, these popular mobilization forces, so-called, very, very important, was that Iran would pick up the tab for senior salaries, for training and equipment, and for pensions. Pensions particularly of war-wounded and war-widows. They can't pay them now. They can't pay them because they don't have access to currency. So how are they paid? They're paid by the finagling and fandangos of working through the pro-Iranian elements, are you following me, in the Baghdad regime. And that has annoyed so many of the Shia populace in, 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 uh, in Iraq and why you get the protest in Iran because their government is letting down the Iranian people because it's pissing away money on the wrong things. And that's why we've got... Uh, it's not being identified in these terms yet, but I'm, I'm getting this... Nothing of this comes from the UK. It comes from friends who are talking to people in Iran and Iraq all the time. We're getting the beginnings of a popular perfect storm here. It will be difficult to realise, though, given I mean the, the attempts to have a green uprising in two thousand and nine. I mean, and and the simple things are being done to make sure that 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 potential is choked. Cutting mm. off the internet, for example, sending out riot police before the gatherers have even started. I mean, Iran is trying to hand, take get a narrative handle on this as hard as it can. Are we? We're looking at a perfect storm, but what are the chances of it actually coming to coming to fruition? I'm like. Personally, I don't think it's there yet. I think what you're going to see is the seeds being planted. And these are the types of seeds that take a a few years, really, um, to start to germinate. Because I I also think that it, you know, a popular, we've seen a number of popular uprisings over the past 2019, saw a slew of them. Uh, But the difference between those that succeed and those that end up being clamped down, I mean, Kashmir still doesn't have internet, for example. You know, so I think there are tools that governments have to really clamp down, and Iran is no stranger to these. But to to Robert's point, there are seeds of real discontent starting to germinate. And also, like, again, it's one of these generational things. Once you've got people who, young people who have grown up um, and spent years and years and years with this dissatisfaction and no, you know, sanctions continuing to come down on them and so on and no opportunity, that's when people feel like they have nowhere else to go. It's always the fringes. I think it's going to be the passage. I think it's going 
going to be the local militias if they can't pay them, if they don't mm. get their privileges anymore. And there have been that's, some signs yeah. of that, that, that. That's the thing that, that, that can turn it. But it's going to be a mess, and it's a mess that no outsider is going to be able to manage. Robert Fox and Yasmin Abdel-Majid there. Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bates joins me with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Emma. Iran's President Hassan Rouhani has said those responsible for the accidental downing of the Ukrainian passenger plane will be punished. Rouhani added that the, quote, tragic event would be investigated thoroughly and offered his assurances that something like it wouldn't happen again. The UK government has said that it has formally rejected a call from Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, for a second referendum on independence. Prime Minister Boris Johnson said another plebiscite would, quote, continue the political stagnation Scotland has seen for the past decade. And today's Monocle Minute reports on a lack of the white stuff at this year's snow festival in Sapporo, Japan. The Japanese event is due to start at the end of the month, but there are fears there might not be enough raw material for sculptors to work with. For more on this story, head to monocle.com minute and subscribe to our Daily Digest. Those are some of the headlines we're following today. Now back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio today, my panel, Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Robert Fox. NASA has reported that smoke from Australia's wildfires will soon stretch around the globe and spread right back to its country of origin. Haze over South America can be traced back to fires burning on New Year's Day in New South Wales. But while the effect of the fires is plain to see from space, back on Earth there's been criticism that Australia's media have been a little less clear in their reporting. Yasmin, there are articles that have been written that say that lives have spread faster than grass fire during Australia's unprecedented national emergency. What's being meant by this? Oh, it's a heartbreaking. This is a heartbreaking thing for for me to talk about as someone who's grown up in Australia and who has lots of friends who have been living through these fires, not only sort of on on the south coast and so on, but being affected in Melbourne and Sydney. To sort of to see the stories that are coming out from the ground on social media and so on and then to turn to the papers and to see the majority Murdoch press um and, and numerous uh television and radio stations propagating essentially misinformation and disinformation about the fires and the the reason the fires started. So claims around arson that are essentially factually untrue, um, claims and a huge uh, and yeah, um, green uh, <laughs> eco-terrorists they're being called and so on, but also broadly a, a complete denial of climate change and a complete denial that there's any link between what's going on at the moment in Australia and any sort of climate... and especially Australia being an enormous exporter of coal, a country that has just approved an enormous new coal mine in in my home state of Queensland, and a country that has an inability to um, legislate in any way, shape or form around climate. To be honest, the climate change issue has been the downfall of numerous prime ministers. And so this this has become... Six, in fact, right? (laughs) Since, like, Kevin Kevin Rudd in, in... in the early uh, 2000s, and so in the mid 2000s, and and so I think what people don't realise is, or what perhaps is difficult to see from outside Australia, is that the climate change issue has become almost like the guns rights issue in the United States. It cleaves people, and it's this is the fires. I think are a real 
perhaps the the biggest turning point for the conversation because folks who may who, who may have been on a different side of the debate are all of a sudden losing their homes and and the the royal fire service and the um the volunteers and so on have said folks we've been warning you about this for so long you need to listen it is that issue isn't it that when you talk about climate change or many of us talked about climate change until recently it has become something that happens to other things and people in other places there are problems in the oceans they say things are getting warmer others say and yet stuff like climate change only really will provoke any kind of real reaction when it becomes relevant to to us this is um, a very powerful driver in the nativism and neo-isolationism of the current party and government in the UK. And it's it's quite striking that, quite rightly as you say, Emma, it happens elsewhere and it doesn't really happen anyway. And it's a put-up job. I was reading a uh, a review article, and the um, article is much more interesting than the book, of the latest volume of Mrs Thatcher's uh, biography by David Runciman uh, of Cambridge. And what I did not realise is that before she was sort of felled by strokes and slightly uh, left planet Earth, that Thatcher ran a court in exile in Flood Street or wherever she was living in London. And all these people came. They were against EU integration. They were against Maastricht. Sorry, I haven't gone off the subject. And climate change walks right into the middle of this, which is extraordinary. Thatcher, the first scientist prime minister of the UK, was absolutely clear in office about where we were going with demographic boom, change, migration. She was also terribly good on climate change. Why did she turn round? It was because she'd been betrayed. Her betrayal was done by the EU and the EU's lackey. It was the EU by then from the EC, lackeys like uh, Lord Heseltine and so on. And climate change was a cause being promoted by a socialist conspiracy emanating from Brussels and continental Europe. And it is so powerful. And it's put Boris Johnson on the spot because, yes, we are feeling the effects of climate change because of weird weather and flooding. And there's got to be big-time community involvement in that. And it's very, very strange because I think... I don't know whether the dog is going to bark in the election campaign in America, but certainly if Trump gets a second term, he is really going to be hammered on this in the USA. Yasmin, you were very mm. clear in pointing the finger at the Murdoch mm. press. The the fact that Australia's traditional establishment press is, is controlled in, by a handful of players. Quite literally. Um, and... It it got me thinking that is there is there literally a one or two individuals sending out strong messages to editorial floors saying thou shalt not mention climate change you shall only push the pro fossil fuels agenda or is it actually a question occasionally of editorial floors getting it wrong the age-old cock-up over conspiracy theory. No, this is this is not one or two editorials. This is a complete sort of from, I mean, I don't know, but it really does look like it's from Rupert himself and sort of filtering down. And in fact, there have been splits between um, Rupert Murdoch and his son, um, who has a completely James, different yeah. view, right? Um, I think it's it's Lachlan it um, on, on climate change. Him and his wife sort of coming out publicly and saying, we are so disappointed in this climate denialism. And I think the way I read something that really um, summed it up, the, the, the Murdoch 
line is that climate science is this orthodoxy and they are the brave people that are saying that are speaking truth to the to the to the climate science and to the this sort of leftist propaganda and they are the courageous dissenters and i think that is really how they're positioning themselves but like this has been going on for years headlines like climate change did not cause this firestorm it's hysteria this can it's 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 to be read but not believed I mean, this is not just one or two things. This is a hard line. But the really interesting thing, if I may, and I know we're running out of time, but the really interesting thing is in the past week or so, when things have gotten so bad, the the Australian has tried to turn around and say, oh, but of course we've said that climate change uh, climate science is not to be denied. But now what we've got to do is lead the way. And you're like, what is going on here? Uh, before we move on, I think we must stress that no member of the Murdoch family are here to actually defend <laughs> that statement that you have just but made. But it is the cultish aspect of all this that's so worrying. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Finally, twinning towns, a rather archaic, cosy and twee gesture between minor like-minded municipalities or a majorly explosive diplomatic grenade to be chucked. The latter seems to be the case at the moment after the Czech capital Prague signed a sister agreement with the Taiwanese capital Taipei. Suffice to say, mainland China ain't happy, given its concerted efforts to persuade the rest of the world to alienate itself from Taiwan. Uh, Robert, why did Prague hook up with Taipei? I think it's the way, it's it's the spirit of Vaclav Havel, that, you know, that uh, we do want to get together. And as you say, what are... Twinnings are bad. I think it's just for sort of knees ups, but it's terribly interesting because this is just another little nailette in the coffin mm. of the information war uh, by Mr. Xi Jinping that they think they can dominate it. This is the thing that we've had uh, Isabel Hilton, a great sinologist, on this program. We've discussed this that this is why, above all, Hong Kong is important, uh, which in in the information war the Uyghurs were more important, but the Chinese are beginning to get scared about it because their approach of, uh, 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 to uh, Western media, particularly internet media and social media, is, um, as Bill Clinton would say, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It's just to block it all out. It's not working. And this is just another little bit in the... It's a sort of info skirmish, but I really take my hat off to the Czechs over this because they put two fingers up to Shanghai on this who've tried to bully them out of it. A much more important connection, theoretically. But, of course, the Czech Republic doesn't have much of a coastline. <laughs> this is what I find quite interesting, though, about this whole story, is that China has been having issues with Prague, the city and its mayor, who's obviously gone a bit rogue here. It's not the Czech Republic who've been offending the Chinese because the, the president, Milos Zeman, has been really pushing hard to you know, yeah. forge quite necessary economic ties. I just love the idea that the Prague mayor just went, geopolitics, forget it. I want to make friends with Taipei. Yeah, I do love that. And I do love the idea of the sister... <laughs> yeah, the sister cities. Like, you've got a mayor... And usually, like, local politics, local council politics, tends not to make, you know, foreign policy news. But I, as you say, I do love the idea of the mayor being like, you know what, we're going to do this. And I looked up, actually, my hometown of Brisbane, who our sister cities were. And... Abu Dhabi was, and I was like, you know, I had no idea that we had this personal connection, but I'm definitely going to let people know next time. You could go on a school exchange. <laughs> exactly. But it's a loop around what we were talking before. Politics, national politics is the only thing that can resolve what needs to be done about national change, uh, climate change. It's completely unsuited to it. Where mm. all the juice is coming and the real thinking and the guts uh, intellectual and the moral courage is coming at the local and community level. And that's why mm, 
good old mayor of Prague, whose name I forget, <laughs> but he's a big, I hope he's a big, big swallow in a, in, in a summer coming along. I mean, good for him, and he's very good. It, 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 he's absolutely right to say that the, this, this country, uh, whatever you think about Taiwan, self-determination, and China says, we don't care about democracy, we don't, you know, it's going to be ours. I think that that one, by the way, is going to be a really big fight. And unfortunately, if things go wrong, it will be a physical one. Robert Fox and Yasmin Abdel-Majid, thank you very much indeed for joining us in the studio. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about the latest trend in menswear from the runways of Milan. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. And you're back with Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Welcome. Finally today, fashion's finest have been strutting the streets of Milan this week and according to our team over there, it seems to be quite a formal affair. Guys, are you ready to don sharp tailoring and polished leather lace-ups? This past week, the menswear crowds congregated in Florence and Milan for the autumn winter shows and, judging by the collections, it seems the pendulum has swung back to formal dressing after murmurings for several seasons that it was heading this way. Combine this with the recent comment from designer and streetwear guru Virgil Abloh that streetwear's definitely going to die in 2020, and you'd think it was a done deal. But whether a more buttoned-up look will really permeate mainstream urbanite dress codes the world over this year is less clear than at first glance. For starters, Italy is the epicentre of tailoring, so it's natural for Italian brands to embrace formal ensembles more so than, say, US brands. More importantly, while there was barely a trainer on the catwalks, there were still plenty of comfy-looking kicks in the front rows. The boom in sportswear and streetwear has made it acceptable to dress comfortably and casually nearly all the time. These movements have gone beyond being a fashion trend. They've become part of our lifestyles. We're now more active and favour gear that can take us from one occasion to the next without fuss. So if brands are to tempt consumers into dressing more sharply, they'll need to imbue tailored ensembles with sportswear's comfort and ease. Sportswear's relative affordability is another matter. In Milan, Salvatore Ferragamo did so convincingly with oversized coats and trousers whose roomy proportions recalled the relaxed silhouettes typical of streetwear. Meanwhile, Caruso, with a new creative director, presented looks that were well cut, but still fairly casual and colourful. And Traiano, a young Milanese brand, unveiled suits, jackets and pleated trousers that are made from a stretchy nylon that doesn't wrinkle and can be machine-washed, digitally printed with patterns that mimic walls and plaids. Sound futuristic? It just might be the way to get sportswear-obsessed shoppers back into two pieces. You can read more of our coverage from Milan by subscribing to our daily newsletter, The Monocle Minute. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to my guests and Monocle's Houseview producer, Daniel Bache, and researcher, Nick Toom. Thanks also to our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett, this week with a focus on good magazine design. Monocle's Houseview is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 if you're listening here in London. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>